Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Good evening everybody, um, kia ora and welcome to you all to um, tonight's Auckland Conversations, uh, Changing Streets to Change the World. It's a great title. Um, my name is Ludo Campbell-Reed, I'm the Council's Design Champion and I'm also tonight's uh, MC. Uh, what a great turnout, uh, it's a pretty packed house, um, definitely from this area right through to the other end, so thank you everybody for, for making it. Um, you're all here because you want to be here, so it's uh, really wonderful to see so many people. I'd just like to um, thank uh, our sign language interpreters who are here, going to be here with us tonight. It's a pretty unenviable job trying to uh, um, sort of, uh, kind of tell my story. I speak very fast, but thank you both. Very, thank you very much for being here and helping us uh, tell the story in a more a coherent and accessible way. So uh, thank you to them. So as I said, what a great uh, turnout and um, really excited about this evening. Um, it's just a beautiful night on Auckland's waterfront and a really wonderful building to have these conversations. Um, I'd just like to thank a few people before we begin. Um, in particular, Auckland Transport um, and also the uh, Institute of Professional Engineers, IPENS uh, for short. Um, therefore, they partnered us to bring Sky to Auckland and to New Zealand. So um, thank you very much, guys, for working with us on that. I'd like to uh, also thank, um, in particular, our partner sponsors, uh, Rosine and Jib, for their continuing uh, unwavering support. So um, really thank you guys for sticking with us and um, being our un under underwriters, in effect. So uh, would you mind just giving your, your hand for Rosine and Jib? Um, as with all these things, you know, it, it requires a whole range of people to support us and, and again, it wouldn't happen without the support of the, the private sector in particular. Um, so I'd like to, I'd particularly like to thank our programme sponsors and they're, they're up, on the, up on the wall there. Um, in particular, Brookfield Lawyers, uh, Boffer Miskell, uh, the Architectural Designers of New Zealand, uh, MR Cagney, uh, the New Zealand Institute of Architects and the New Zealand Planning Institute. Um, as well as the New Zealand Green Buildings Council as well. Um, and last but not least, um, as I said, thank you all for, for turning up from wherever you are. Um, we're also live streaming around the world, so you never quite know um, who's listening in this evening. So, um, before I begin, just some important health and safety housekeeping issues. Um, this is a no-smoking building, so uh, please do refrain from that, even outside on the balconies, we, 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 that's not permitted. Um, in the unlikely event of a, an emergency of any sort, there will be a loud siren and uh, there will be some ushers who will take you um, to the, to the, the, um, ex the um, emergency exits and uh, escort you out the building. And what we'll do is we'll gather on the forecourt on the plaza by, um, on, down on the Wynyard uh, quarter there. Um, and last but not least, uh, the ladies and gents. So in case you haven't realised where they are, go straight out these doors and they're straight directly ahead of you and they're all signed, so um, there we go. So, let's get talking, as we're here to do. Tonight's a, a bit of a double bill for you. You got two for the price of one. Well, actually, you're not, you're not, no one's paying, so um, it's free. But um, first up is uh, an opportunity that's come about um, through Sky's arrival in, in New Zealand. And it's uh, really, it's a global first for us. It's the global book launch of Street Fight, and um, this is a book that uh, I've got my copy, um, and it's uh, an extraordinary new book that's been written um, by Jeanette Sadiq Khan, um, who was the former um, uh, New York 
City uh, Transport Commissioner, uh, who visited us uh, a year and a half or so ago and uh, really kind of captured our hearts. Um, she and uh, her colleague and advisor, Seth Solomonel, um, have just completed the book. And um, tonight we've been given the great pleasure of actually launching the book um, in the world. So um, bizarrely, in 10 hours' time in New York, they'll be going live with the first sort of launch of the book. But New Zealand? Uh, 10 hours ahead of the rest of the world, and I think there's a, a real competitive business advantage around that. I don't know where that leads, that comment, but you know, you can be the first for things um, rather than the last, so there's a real opportunity here. Um, Jeanette, under the uh, leadership of, of the fantastic Mayor Bloomberg, um, did some incredible things in New York, and she was here sharing her experience and skills and, and passion for cities, and uh, her motto around, if you can do it in New York, you can do it anywhere. And uh, we introduced her to Auckland City of Cars, and um, we believe that um, one step at a time we are, you know, coming out of that, that old journey. And um, one project which came out of Jeanette's visit was uh, Light Path, which is the pink cycle highway up, on the, up, on the, up in Newton. And um, she really encouraged, and, and her presence here cajoled and encouraged and, and fostered an opportunity which we took and gave us impetus. So we have a lot to, to thank for Jeanette. So um, I hope she's well um, in New York. But uh, working on, alongside Mayor Bloomberg, Jeanette managed the seemingly impossible uh, and transformed the streets of one of the world's greatest, toughest cities into a dynamic space uh, that became safe for pedestrians and for cyclists and commerce. Her approach was really dramatic and effective, simply painting a, a part of the street to make it into a plaza or a bus lane not only made the street feel safer, but it also lessened congestion and increased foot traffic, which improved the bottom line too. Real life experience confirmed that if you know how to read the street, you can make it function better by not totally reconstructing it, but by reallocating the space that already exists. The book includes examples of how this new way to read the streets has already made its way around the world. Um, and it includes much more pedestrian friendly streets, which are also in our own fair city of Auckland. Um, several of our street transformations are in this book, and it's, it's just so cool that, um, that, that a book of that sort and written by somebody like Jeanette um, has covered the, the best practice of, of street making in, in Auckland. So the team, um, Auckland Transport and ourselves, are, are pretty proud and just shows how far Auckland's come. So in terms of getting copies of the book, um, tonight we've got Carol, who's down the far side, so as you look towards us, she's waving there in the yellow. She, Carol runs um, the book, women's bookshop on Ponsonby Road, um, so you can buy a copy directly from, from Carol, um, or you can purchase it online if you've forgotten your, your, um, your wallet. Uh, and there's also an online link on the Auckland Conversations website. So, um, it's a, a real opportunity uh, to be here. So, um, in recognition of the opportunity that, that sits before us around the book, um, we know how everyone likes the... Um, this opportunity to uh, a bit of a lucky dip. Um, if you all look underneath your seats, somebody will have a, um, an envelope that will be stuck to the bottom of your, your seat. Sky, you mustn't look. <laughs> that defeats the object. Has anybody got an envelope underneath their chair? Yep, so, sir, you've won a copy of uh, Street Fight. So, um, congratulations. So perhaps uh, come up to me afterwards and we'll, um, in fact, um, Jean and the team, would you mind just making sure we know that gentleman? So um, I hope you enjoy the book, sir, and uh, many happy nights of reading. Um, so if you want a signed copy as well, we'll organise that as well from Jeanette, so um, that, that's all good.
So look, um, on to the main event tonight. Um, sorry to kind of keep you waiting, um, but it just takes time sometimes. Um, good things um, come to those who wait. So look, um, on to the main course this evening. Sky Duncan um, is the director of the Global Designing Cities Initiative for the National Association of City Transportation Officials, NACTO. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, but they're based in Manhattan in New York. Um, originally from Dunedin, um, Sky is an urban designer with over a decade of experience in architecture, urban design planning, and landscape architecture. She comes to her current role after seven years working as a senior urban designer um, at the New York City Department of City Planning in the office of the chief urban designer. In New York, she's helped shape sites of all scales across the city and, and all sites around the city. Uh, she's collaborated with multiple agencies and organizations to help make New York City a more sustainable, resilient, livable, and healthy city. I remember the, the caption of Mayor Bloomberg was a greener, greater New York, which I, I think really sums it up nice and, nice and quick. Um, Sky's worked professionally as an international urban design consultant in Brazil, Colombia, Canada, and New Zealand. And she has been the Associate Professor of Columbia University in the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation for the past seven years. She graduated as a Fulbright Scholar at Columbia in the Master of Science in Architecture and Urban Design program, and has a Bachelor of Architecture with honors from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. In her current role, she has led the production of a world first, another world first tonight, um, a global street design guide um, at NACTO, and we're part of the NACTO team. And she's worked with urban design and transport professionals across the globe, um, including our own staff at Auckland Council and Auckland Transport. So we're, we're part of the, of the club now, team. Um, so what is this design guide? It's a scalable best practice street design guide for cities to help to transform themselves into healthy, safe, and sustainable environments. And what is particularly cool is that Auckland is showcased on two occasions. And um, again, that's a real privilege for Auckland to be part of that. So Sky, thank you for, for doing that. But they're in there because they're good, uh, not because you're a Kiwi. <laughs> so Sky's arrival in Auckland is very timely, as we too are in the throes of, of massive, unprecedented change and transformation, and none more critical than the impact of transportation and, and population growth on the city, on our public realm and the wider livability and competitiveness of the city. In this regard, Auckland Transport are leading the production of our very own transport design manual, a street design guide, um, um, and the team have spent quality time with Sky over the last few days um, comparing notes and, and, and sharing lessons. So, I am thrilled to present to you the one and only Sky Duncan. <laughs> Sorry, there's some water for you as well. Thanks, Lodo, um, and thank you, Auckland Council and IPENS, for having me here today. This is a really wide audience, so I'll try and keep um, spinning my head from side to side and not messing up the sound. Uh, thank you to all of you for choosing to be in here. Uh, this is pretty hard to compete on a gorgeous Auckland evening on the waterfront. Um, so I'm impressed. Thank you. I'm glad you're spending time with us. Um, needless to say, with Jeanette's launch of Street Fight, she wasn't too happy when I told her I wasn't going to be in New York for the book launch. I said, but I'm going to be in New Zealand and we're going to be talking about similar stuff. So she was pretty excited when uh, I told her I was going to be here. She loved Auckland. Um, did anyone, was anyone here actually? Did they get to see her talk? Awesome. That's great. It's pretty good, uh, pretty good turnout. So um, I'm going to talk to you tonight um, about changing streets. Um, I'm going to talk about changing streets around the world, but with the hope that you guys can look at how we change streets um, in Auckland. 
Quick poll, who, uh, who biked here? Who walked here? Awesome. Who drove here? She drove. And what about bus or transit? That's a pretty good mix. We should get the transit numbers up a little bit, but um, that's, that's great. Nice mix this evening. So as I mentioned, I'm gonna be here. I want to help you guys see the potential uh, in the streets of Auckland. Um, I want to, see if I can click it, uh, to help us kind of together think about how we can restore the role um, of the street as the fundamental lifeblood of our communities. Sorry, I should figure out where to point this actually to you guys, there we go. Um, and as we all know, well, hopefully most of us know, and now you will, streets are essentially our largest continuous network of public open space, and we really have not been doing a great job at using that space efficiently. So part of what we want to do is transform and reimagine and rethink these spaces. Now, streets achieve multiple city goals for mobility and access, environmental sustainability and economic sustainability, livability and quality of life, uh, but the one lens that I'm going to, if I can get the clicker working, um, talk to you about this evening is from a lens from public health and safety. Uh, the work we've been doing um, as part of the Bloomberg Initiative for Global Road Safety, um, in 2014, Bloomberg committed $125 million to combat, uh, to try and help combat global road safety. Um, and part of what our role is in that and what I'm going to be talking to you today from NACTO and Global Designing Cities Initiative is the work we've been doing on the Global Street Design Guide. Now every year around the world, more than 1.25 million people die on our streets. So some of you may know that number. Um, but what we have to remind ourselves is that that's one person every 30 seconds. So that actually means that the time that we're just sitting in this room, by the time we walk out, 120 people are going to be dead and they're gonna have died on our streets around the world. It's essentially the equivalent, this might be problematic with all the slides, but uh, <laughs> this is the equivalent of the entire population of Auckland dying on the streets every single year. So we know that this is one of our global leading causes of death. It's number nine at the moment. And currently trends from the World Health Organization telling us if we don't do anything, we're gonna be heading to number seven. So the thing is, of that entire list, we know that these deaths are, pre are preventable. And the great thing is that we actually know what we can do about it. Uh, we can start by acknowledging that speed kills, and I think in general New Zealand's pretty good on this front, um, but we can start by lowering speeds. If we look at the risk of pedestrian death uh, at the impact speed, if a pedestrian is hit when a vehicle is moving at 30 kilometers an hour, they have an 80% chance of surviving that impact of that crash. But if the vehicle is going just 20 kilometers faster at 50 kilometers an hour, they have an 80% chance of dying from that crash. So we have to lower speeds and we fundamentally have to design streets that put people first. We have spent decades now, the last, more than the last half century, designing our city streets that have forgotten about the fact that 
human beings live there. We've designed environments that put people on the side. We don't provide any space for them in many cases. We put them in environments where they have to risk their lives just across the street to take their kids to school, to go to work. This was a photo I took in Bandung last year where this poor woman was trying to cross the street with five, six, eight children. And what you literally have to do is walk out with one hand and stop, as you can see on her hand, and the other hand you have to cross your fingers and hope not to die. Just last week in Bogota, I was there, and within about 30 minutes I spent on one site that we were, we were looking at for the work we're doing there. We counted seven people in wheelchairs in the middle of the road having to compete with speeding traffic. This was one, this was another. So, you know, this is far too extreme. We've spent way too long doing this where we design our streets for a large number of metal boxes to use that space. I showed this slide yesterday. This is in Ponsonby on the weekend. I was crossing the street with a friend of mine and, uh, you know, being a New Yorker, I kind of stepped out and, uh, you know, went across the street and this woman kind of pulled up and went to turn in and gave me the most evil look in the world. She's like, you're like the scum of the earth. What are you doing, you know? And I kind of looked back and I'm like, I'm a pedestrian, right? I'm, I'm like the most fundamental form of mobility that someone can have and what do you mean I don't have the right? And that's all I was disgusted. I showed this slide and at dinner last night, someone said to me, well, but Sky, you know here cars have the right of way over pedestrians, right? And I was like, I am a Kiwi, but, and I know I must have grown up with this, but I've spent so long now that that totally blew my mind. And I was thinking, you know, I know this is national policy, but why on earth would we give the right of way to someone in, like, total protective armor where all they have to do is stop is like bend their ankle a little bit over a child walking to school it seems completely backward to me so you know I don't know maybe that we can tackle that one next time we come back I know it's very controversial but the good thing is absolutely the good thing is that we know that there's many great examples around the world where we've started to see wonderful approaches where we can balance the different users of people in our streets, from Melbourne to Istanbul to Prague to cities like Amsterdam, Helsinki, Finland, which I actually think would be an amazing, and I keep meaning to talk to you about this, Ludo, I think it would be an amazing precedent um, for, for Auckland in terms of size and the mobility and, and the kind of city fabric was very familiar to me there. Um, the bicycle infrastructure that we've started to see in London and Lima San Paolo, who are transforming into sections to think about how people cross the street, and at the same time, taking tiny little pockets of public space back through parklets and spaces where people can sit and rest and pause in the street. Temporary measures or interim measures where we can test things and trial them and claim a little bit of pedestrian space. This is a big model uh, that Jeanette did in, in New York City and we're seeing pop up, and this, this one in particular was from Buenos Aires in Argentina. And Mexico City, we're seeing examples where this space of the street is given back to the people through playgrounds and, and places for people to sit and enjoy conversations with each other. And in some cases, cars are being taken out altogether, examples in Glasgow and Madrid. We see this historic fabric, of course, the famous Auckland. Um, some of the best examples of shared streets, and, and one of the ones we're actually showcasing in the Global Guide, 
Um, yesterday we went on a on a bike ride um, on the new pink bike lane, which is which is a great addition uh, to the city and also down the Nelson, the new Nelson Street uh, cycle lane. So it's great to see these very recent uh, transformations in Auckland. So we're you know really starting to see some of the moves in the right direction here, which is fabulous. When we talk about speed, we see this kind of cutesy example from the UK where they say 20 is plenty. Um, and I was thrilled the other day when I landed to see an article, and I still don't actually know if this is passed or is about to pass. I guess I'm going to Christchurch tomorrow, so I'll find out. But about the reduction of the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour um, in the CBD there. But we can go so much further. You know, some of the examples that we're seeing with Paris, with car-free days, in Bogota, again, car-free days where we just say enough is enough and sometimes we, let's just rethink our city streets. Last week, I was meeting with the mayor of Bogota and he said, you know, our kids spend two hours getting to school in a school bus and two hours coming home every day. And I said, this is ludicrous. These kids should be learning and playing and doing better things with their time. And he said, you know, we're going to think about doing car-free hours every day. Let's take peak hours and let's take the cars out and let's help the people who really need to get places, our most vulnerable users, get there quickly. There's bold thinking from cities like Dublin who are saying that their, car, that their city centres will be car-free by 2017. That's next year. That is so soon, but incredibly exciting. Of course, everyone knows about Copenhagen, right? It's like, oh, it's Copenhagen, yeah, you know. A third of people bike and a third of people take public transport. But they've built the city to facilitate that. In some cases, the biking is so popular, they have multiple lanes. They have turning lanes for cycles. So they're starting to think about different modes of transportation um, and getting around. The e-bike share system, which is, allows elderly people, it allows people catering to hilly contexts. I think it would be amazing, actually, for Auckland and Wellington and Sydney and some of these cities that it could increase the accessibility of biking as a mode of transportation for people. It's great. Has anyone here been on an e-bike or a pedal assist? Yeah? Yeah, it's cool. You, I mean, you're biking, right? But when you're going up a big hill, you don't really want to arrive all hot and sweaty at your meeting or whatever. So a little little boost and a little help doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't hurt to get there. But cities like Copenhagen are taking these bold moves of saying, well, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2025, also just around the corner. You're like, yeah, whatever, it's Copenhagen, right? We're Auckland, we're not Copenhagen, we're not Europe, we don't do that stuff. But Copenhagen wasn't always like that, right? In the 60s, the streets looked like this, and they've changed it. They changed the space of the street. Even in this great website, Herb, uh, I encourage you to check it out. They have, you know, do all these Google street views. Um, and they, just from 2009 to 2014, were taking away spaces that were basically being filled with empty parking lots or empty cars, sorry, no people in those spaces, um, and transforming them to make them kind of destinations and places in themselves. In Amsterdam, similarly, oh, well, everyone always biked in Amsterdam, right? Well, they did bike, but their streets didn't always look like that. They've made transformations from the 60s to playgrounds and, again, destinations and neighborhoods. So part of, and I apologize, these numbers are kind of working. I was having my team help pull them up as we were heading off on the plane. But part of what we're starting to do is like, how do we look at cities and understand the density and the population and understand the desirable mode shares of how we want our people to be getting around in the future? 
and then build the infrastructure and understand who's doing what and how, how can we steal and borrow and share and adapt as many of these strategies as we can to make our own cities as good as they can possibly be. Now the transformations that I was talking about, they didn't happen by accident. People made decisions, they made conscious decisions to design and build and invest in multimodal transportation in their cities. So, you know, we have the precedence and we know what's possible and increasingly we're understanding the urgency that our cities are growing, that our climates are changing and that our people are dying on the streets and there's a long way to go. And it's people like you guys in the audience today and we need your bold visions, we need your technical support. If you're not working in an official capacity in shaping streets, we need your advocacy and your local action to try and help us get there. So we're starting to try and do some of this work at Bloomberg uh, Initiative for Global Road Safety. What's happened as part of the five-year grant program is we're working with a number of partners you see up here, um, and they're working at kind of at this approach through enforcement and data and media, but what our team is looking at is how do we work on the infrastructure, the built environment of the city, and how do we transform the city to facilitate safe streets and safe mobility. So the first year of our project was this, uh, what I like to call the impossible project and the impossible timeline uh, to produce a global street design guide. Um, it's still, we're still, we're just wrapping it up and it will be ready later this year. Um, we've got a preview copy um, of kind of a little, little taste of, of what's to come in that, but I'm going to talk to you about some of what's in there today. And then starting in January, we're providing technical assistance to three of ten cities to start with. Um, and in this year, we'll be focusing on Sao Paulo and Brazil, Bogota in Colombia, and Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Um, so NACTO, as uh, Ludo kindly mentioned, um, it's a very annoyingly long title, but the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Um, I had to practice saying that about 300 times when I took this job. Um, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, has anyone here heard of NACTO? Couple of hands. Okay. Cool, so a little bit about what we do. Part of it is it's a membership organization through city transportation officials uh, across North America. And part of what they do is facilitate peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. Um, so if you know someone in the city of San Francisco is trying to put in a bike share station and they're struggling with technical or complications because it's on a hill and we don't know how it worked and how did, how did anyone else do it, other people can pipe up and kind of say, well, hey, we, we tried that in Seattle or we tried this in Austin and here's how we overcame those challenges. So we're trying to help people from, rather than reinventing the wheel, learn from each other's mistakes. Um, we have an annual conference. Uh, we bring all these people together. If anyone happens to be passing through Seattle in September, we'll be there, so come and join us. It's a really fun, great conference. Um, and the third primary area, primary area that we work in is producing design guidance. Um, do these books look familiar to anyone? Maybe some of the transportation folk. What happened uh, under the leadership of our fearless leader, Jeanette Sadakan, who you heard about and some of you know, um, she realized a, a number of years ago that our national, our federal codes and guidelines of how we design our streets were essentially for highways being applied in our cities, and we didn't want that. We don't want highways in the middle of our cities where we're meant to be focusing on people. So rather than try and change the national government, we know would take a long time with the guidance there. She said, all right, let's, let's make our own. And so we kind of pulled together all the expertise from those cities to produce this type of guidance. Um, and the Urban Street Design Guide has now been adopted uh, by more than 40 cities across the US 
seven, maybe eight states at the moment, um, and it actually just got mentioned in the new federal um, bill, so that's pretty exciting. Um, that these are now opening new opportunities of how to ask what's possible and to design urban streets. So the lady herself, Jeanette Sada Khan, uh, in 2014 uh, launched the Global Designing Cities Initiative, where we would essentially kind of do the same thing, but on a global scale as opposed to just North American cities. So as I mentioned, part of what we, the kickstart of that was to take the urban design guide, the urban street design guide, and do a global version of that. Uh, the hope is that it can be a resource to complement the many guides that are out there and tools that help people shape cities um, and to really help think about how we achieve the global agenda through local action. How can we inspire leaders, inform practitioners and also empower communities to make better use of their streets and their cities? How do we help people take this current hierarchy that exists in so many urban environments and to flip it on its head and to put people first, to prioritize transit and biking and cities, to understand that critical services and freight and businesses have certain functions that we have to consider, and then when there's space and when we can, we can fit in private motor vehicles. Now there's a lot of new technologies and a lot of hype around driverless cars and AV and, and how do we kind of, what are the vehicles of the future? And this stuff is fundamental, it's critical, absolutely, and it is gonna change the way that our streets work. But if we don't get this part right to start with, it doesn't matter what's driving on our streets. We'll only be repeating the mistakes of last century. So we have to start with people and then figure out how we want these new technologies to fit into the types of cities that we want to see. Now, we didn't just hide out in our Manhattan office and produce this global guide uh, in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, we emulated the, the NACTO membership and we created an expert network from people around the world. We had representation from over 70 cities and 40 countries. You'll all be pleased to know, maybe it's not my bias, but we had great buy-in from Ludo and his team here and folk in Wellington and Christchurch. So I was very stoked to know that New Zealand was well represented um, in this global network uh, to give input on the structure and the content of the document um, and to review it along the way. And part of what we're doing is we're really asking people to think about what's possible. A huge amount of our city streets, it's, it's fundamental that we get the design of new streets, right, in new developments, in new parts of the city, yes, that's important. We need to stop making the same mistakes. But about, generally, about 80% of our cities from 2030 are already built today. So if we don't tackle what we already have and rethink that, then we're really not doing our job properly. So a lot of the premise of the Global Guide is to look at how do we transform, look at a before and after strategy. Um, of using that space. We've had a lot of discussions in the last couple of days at the IPENS conference around how we shift from functional classification, which is essentially like a, for those of you who are not engineers, like a system that talks about is a, is a street, is it an arterial, is it a connector, or is it a local street? And that's all about how many vehicles does it move around. And we are trying to take a different approach with a global guide, and we're saying, our streets must start with people, the people who use them, the people who we want to use them in the future, and they must be about place. They must be about the context in which they're moving through. 
The outcomes of a street, as I mentioned in one of the first slides, need to be broader than just mobility. We have to think about how we use the space to improve desired outcomes for health and uh, safety, for livability, environmental and economic sustainability, and of course to do this in a fair way that's equitable to our populations. The guide has 10 key principles, maybe not surprising, uh, but let's start with our most vulnerable users. Let's design streets that are safe, that, that work towards healthy communities and healthy citizens. To remind ourselves that streets are public space. They are public space. That means they belong to all of us here. That they're ecosystems, that they're multimodal, that they must make sense for context. That great streets are great for business. That we don't experience them in a static moment in time, but they're multi-dimensional. We experience them in time and in space. There's many planes to the space of a street. And the best one of all, the fact that streets can change and let's start and act now. When we talk about designing streets for people, maybe so, no surprise to you now, we start with pedestrians. We look at cyclists and collective transit. We talk about motor, private motor vehicles, people moving goods and city services, and people using streets for business. We go through understanding how each of these users move, their scale, their speed, how far we can travel using each mode. And we look at how much space each of these different modes of transportation takes up. And we see very quickly that to move 50 people, we take up very different amounts of space here. So if, if we're looking at a city that's projecting a million new people, do we want a million new cars and to design our streets in this way? Or do we want to design our streets using a multimodal approach where we can jam much more into that space and get much more out of it to benefit the communities? So each of the users, we break down in terms of scale and understand speed. We look at what it means to create a comprehensive network, that it doesn't have to be the same the whole way, but that it has to be safe and it has to be connected, and it has to be enjoyable and it has to be of human scale. We understand that in the space of the street, we only have a certain amount of space and that we have to kind of piece together these different puzzle pieces to think about what we, how we want to use it and what we want to fit in. And of course, we want to think about a comprehensive list of elements that make an enjoyable experience. So we do the same thing for all the different users. I'm not going to go through it uh, this evening, but just to give you a sense of the type of information that's in the document. When we talk about place, obviously, as I mentioned, the impossible project of designing a global street design guide, Auckland's pretty different to like Accra in Ghana, right? It's pretty different to Bogota. So we have to think about the local cultures and character and think about the activity and the building edges and how that informs the street activity. We have to think about land use and density. Transportation has to be fundamentally integrated to how we want to grow and where so that we are not designing future neighborhoods where people have no option but to get around with a car. Right? We have to think about this in a very strategic way, about the types of future environments we want our cities to be and for the future generations. 
we have to remind ourselves that the same, the very same street as it moves through context changes, right? At one point, it may be, one street might be a neighborhood main street. It may transform into a central two-way street at one point. And in a dense urban area, it might become a transit mall where private vehicles aren't allowed at all. So a big part of why we break down each of the users in the global guide, a big part of it is bringing them back together in an integrated fashion to understand how do we, how do we transform our streets. So what we did was we selected a, a subset of street typologies um, from tiny, small streets, pedestrian priorities, shared, large streets, um, and certain special conditions. And we have done a bunch of before and afters, and these are based off real projects and real examples that we've abstracted into 3D to show that conditions like this on a neighborhood main street can transform. That shared streets and residential areas can better serve the residents that live there. Shared streets and commercial areas, which you guys are now very familiar with here in Auckland with some of the projects that have happened. Grand streets like this, and this is based off a model in uh, Buenos Aires, actually, in Argentina, and to think how that can be transformed to move more people more efficiently. And as I was looking at this, I kind of thought, well, actually, that, that before, if you take the buildings out, that actually doesn't look too different to the Auckland Harbour Bridge. It's like, gosh, imagine, wow, imagine if maybe, just maybe, I don't know, what if? Streets with elevated structures. So often an eyesore in dividing neighborhoods, how can we rethink the spaces beneath them? How can we maybe in some cases take them down and get rid of them and rethink that real estate and how that street might work? There's some great examples of streets to streams where you know, our cities have urbanized over a long period of time and often what we've done is we've paved over the natural environment and the streams and the rivers that were beneath us and we're starting to see some phenomenal examples of daylighting streets. And when I was here, I think a couple, last year, a year ago, I was meeting with some of the city officials and someone said to me on the side, you know, did you know there was an old river or stream that runs down Queen Street? I said, oh, no, I didn't, but that makes a lot of sense. Gosh, imagine. I don't know, what if? Imagine what kind of destination Queen Street could be. In some cases, thinking about transit priority and making sure that in the way we design the geometry and how we distribute that space achieves the outcomes that we want. In some cases, having no motorized transportation at all and making spaces that prioritize pedestrians through the entire space. We do a similar transformation exercise with intersections in the guide uh, to help people to see what's possible in terms of transforming not only the corridors but how all these different modes come and meet together through raised intersections that are safer and slow vehicles down and increase visibility for pedestrians. This is maybe not so much an Auckland context but surprisingly and sadly it's a context we see a lot uh, around the world and so how can we rethink some of these spaces uh, from squaring the circle, and one that we probably do see in Auckland and we do see in every corner of the world, where we see underutilized space in the street with complex geometries that can very easily be simplified um, and, and ha provide new public space that's beneficial and adds value to the neighborhood. 
part of the guide, uh, of course, it's funded by Bloomberg, and as Ludo mentioned, he's a big data guy, um, so there's a big focus on metrics. Um, and so part of what we look at is also the process and metrics that are involved in shaping streets. Now, we've probably got a diverse group of people uh, sitting in this audience, and I realize you probably can't read this list, but I would say probably most of you would fit into one of these categories um, for some street somewhere in Auckland. So it's important for us to remind ourselves that it's not just the engineers that are sitting there shaping our streets and doing drawings. It's a very, very broad set of society that is involved in some way. So we have to get the right people to the table at the right stage of the project, and we have to understand what they care about, what are different people's passions, and how do we bring that together and, and make spaces that make sense for the most amount of people. When we talk about measuring and evaluating streets, we want to think about what's the physical and operational stuff that we can measure. As projects, uh, how can a mayor go out? We were with the mayor of Sao Paulo, and he said, you know, we are gonna transform a thousand kilometers of sidewalks or footpaths in the city of Sao Paulo. So now every project that is done in the city is able to kind of say, well, actually, you know, well, this one took in 10 kilometers or whatever it is. And so they're able to kind of benchmark and see how they're achieving their goals. If we add more pedestrian crossings and lengthen the time, does it mean that people cross more, you know, behave and, and cross at the points that we intend them to rather than jaywalking? So there's things we can do we, if we add more cycle lanes, is that going to impact who's using it? So it's part of it's thinking about the physical stuff, the infrastructure, the trees we plant, the stuff we build, and understanding how that impacts the use and activity of that space. And some of the things that we can't measure quite so quickly and may actually involve multiple projects working together as part of a network in a city is the bigger picture stuff that ultimately we do really care about, right? Are less people dying on the streets? Are our chronic disease levels and respiratory disease levels going down for our children? Is our air cleaner? Is our water cleaner? These types of things that can take a very long time to measure. So part of what we're doing is setting a baseline to help cities know what to measure and when. So we provide a baseline, help them understand how to do it and why to do it. And we actually had a big meeting with a bunch of the council folk today and we we're saying, as projects are starting to happen, it's very critical that you guys are collecting the before so that we can understand the after. And sometimes it tells us that projects don't work or that we should change the way we're designing it or the way we're doing it, and that's okay. And sometimes it tells us how great a project is doing and we didn't quite know. So it's understanding are we, what's our return on investment? Are things, are things um, benefiting the way we're hoping? Um, we have a lot of global case studies where we've worked with local partners um, in the Global Guide. Um, this one, similar to the one I mentioned earlier in Argentina, uh, where we do the before and afters, we understand the key statistics, we dimension out some of the basic dimensions of the before and after, um, understand the timeline where we can, we pull the metrics. So things like this one, where we see almost 100% decrease in the number of crashes after the project. We see a 30% decrease in the travel time. So even though they, they kind of changed the distribution, cars and buses and everyone was able to actually move more efficiently. It's not faster, but more efficiently. Um, and insane levels of, of um, improvement in the carbon emissions of the project. Um, and then we look at keys to success and of obviously who was involved in the project. Now we have another 20 case studies. Um, one, Fort Street in Auckland. Uh, and to Jalico Street in Auckland. So as I mentioned, where I am personally very excited, even though no one else from my team is from New Zealand, 
um, but that you guys have that representation and that we're able to kind of go out there and start to showcase some of the great work that is already happening here. Um, but to give you a taste, some of the others are, some of them are small scales of, of how we can improve sidewalks in, in Bangalore, to look at informal settlements in Cape Town where streets and the rethinking of the design of the space have transformed communities. This one in Seoul where the highway was removed and the river was daylit underneath it. And improvements of examples under elevated structures where we can rethink that and redesign that. This is another great street to streams. This project in uh, California, the city was paying this annual fine because they were polluting uh, all the runoff was polluting the local water system. And so finally someone said, oh my God, like, okay, come on, let's take the money, let's take the annual fee or the monthly fee, whatever they were paying, and let's pay some designers to come up with a great design. And they did, and they built it, and it's great. And it's, it's now kind of improving the ecosystem and it's using green infrastructure to treat and collect all the water runoff of the streets. So some really wonderful examples. Not the best photos, but uh, examples of transforming waterfronts in Toronto with new transit and bike infrastructure. Um, and again, smaller ones like adding sidewalks in Chennai and India. Abu Dhabi was like insanely excited that they were part of this. They, uh, <laughs> they, they, I had said to them, oh yeah, if you've got any before and after photos, please send them to us and we'll see what we can do to include them in the guide. And uh, they sent them off and then made me sign all the stuff that we would only use the photos with their credit. And I said, yep, absolutely, of course. And then next thing we knew, they were writing articles and tweeting that Abu Dhabi had been selected out of the whole world to be showcased. And we were like, okay, there's a little bit of a communication challenge there. But, uh, but that's good. They're excited about it. Uh, shared streets in London, um, similar to what we're doing here in Auckland, but in residential contexts. Um, pedestrianising entire areas in Istanbul and, um, and a lot of really wonderful parklets and plaza projects in San Francisco. And Stockholm has been doing some wonderful work also rethinking the streets, adding in and improving already existing cycle infrastructure. So they're kind of already in round two, they've already got bike lanes there and they're saying, okay, well it's not wide enough or it's not working well enough, let's improve it and do the second step. So we've got a lot to learn from them. So our hope is that the Global Guide can provide people like you guys to reimagine and reinvest and redesign streets that are safer and more livable for more sustainable streets. I want to show you a couple of quick transformations that we did um, as an exercise for some of our partners internationally. Accra and Ghana, we took an existing street and this area is the Makola Market and it is bustling. It is the most insanely crazy, amazing market you've ever seen in your life. Um, and people are just all over the place, but they can't, it's kind of chaotic, and you know, chaos is good in markets, you like a bit of chaos, um, but it's not really safe chaos, there's still kind of vehicles and, and unsafe areas. So we said, all right, this is a perfect example, what if we took the cars out and we just, you know, did the kind of genetic job with a bit of paint and see what happens and throw in some planters there. But it's insanely hot in Ghana, it's like 40 degrees or something, so you know, we should really kind of add in some trees and figure out some loading systems and, you know, how can we rethink that space? In, uh, in Bandung in Indonesia, um, I know pedestrian bridges are not a big thing here. They're one of my pet peeves and we are certainly making very clear in the Global Guide and a lot of the contexts we're working on are building pedestrian bridges everywhere that just make it so unsafe because no one crosses there anyway. Um, they just cross at the street and therefore they do it in an unsafe way. So we said, all right, let's take this 
there was actually a very critical street connection in Bandung in Indonesia. We said, let's take out the bridge. Let's, uh, you know, let's okay, let's let people safely cross a grade, and 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 then let's give them uh, let's give them some sidewalks, right? Because there's not a lot of space left, and let's uh, let's take out the space for the private vehicles, and uh, let's prioritise cycling and transit. So let's, you know, think about how we can how we can go from spaces like this to spaces like this. So which streets in Auckland? would you do this transformational exercise for? Maybe have a think and uh, you can come and let Ludo know at the end of the talk um, and, or tweet him. But my challenge to you is to ask for it, to demand it, to design it, to fund it and do it. To design streets that put people first and to shift how we measure the success of our streets. And how do we shift away from mobility and safety only for the private automobile to mobility and safety for all users, public health, for streets that foster economic and environmental sustainability that are livable and that are fair to everybody. So please go forth and change the streets of Auckland um, and help change the world. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sky. That was a tour de force um, around the world in 40 minutes. Uh, pretty impressive stuff. Um, look, just we're going to have a bit of a Q&A um, for 15 minutes or so. And um, whilst Sky is just getting herself settled and maybe having a glass of water, um, I'm going to invite a colleague and uh, a friend, um, Greg Edmonds, who's the Chief Infrastructure Officer for Auckland Transport, to come up to the stage um, and join Sky for some Q&A. Greg is, um, what I'm going to do is ask Greg to perhaps uh, talk to you for a couple of minutes just about his role, um, what his team does, their vision and, and where they're going, just on a, a couple of uh, major projects perhaps or, or a sense of what they're up to and that gives everybody a sense of, of who Greg is and what his team does which helps the, the Q&A conversation. So um, without further ado, Greg Edmonds, everybody. Thanks, Ludo. Um, it's always a pleasure to come up and uh, have a few words after you, and it's good to see that I don't have to raise the microphones too high because we're almost at the same level in terms of height. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, as Ludo said, I'm, I'm Greg Edmonds. I'm the Chief Infrastructure Officer for Auckland Transport. I've been in this role for about 15 months. Um, prior to this, I've been with Auckland Transport just over uh, four years. I held the role of Chief Operations Officer for AT before that, and I've got a background in... A uh, variety of transport modes. I spent uh, eight or nine years with Air New Zealand in airport operations. I've spent time in the freight industry working for uh, both New Zealand Post Freightways and a few others. Um, so I've got a broad um, background in transport. Um, my team at Auckland Transport are, are responsible for uh, the, um, I suppose, the, the $16 billion worth of uh, public transport infrastructure that we own. Our roads, we've got 7,500 kilometres of roads and footpaths that we look after, um, all of the uh, rail stations, bus interchanges, street lights. Um, so basically all of the transport infrastructure that the people of Auckland use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, my team are responsible for everything from the property acquisition through the consenting pro processes, 
into the design of the infrastructure, the contracting of the infrastructure, the build of it, and then the maintenance of those assets that we build for the life of those assets. Yesterday when I spoke at the IPENS conference, I talked about we're building assets for, the, for a 50-year-plus life cycle. Um, so there's a, a big responsibility of that. We spend about $200 million a year just on renewing the assets that we have to keep them in a reasonable condition. So uh, that gives you a bit of background around uh, what my team are, are responsible for. If we're, we've got some major projects on the go at the moment, we've got the uh, Manukau bus interchange that we're building as part of the new network for the bus uh, system. We've got the Odahu bus rail interchange that's under construction at the moment. A uh, big $70 million contract up at Albany Highway, widening out the Albany Highway, among others, Tiara Two Roads, etc. The City Rail Link sits outside of my my, uh, my remit, but I sit on the, the project control group for the CRL. Uh, and obviously we are, as you will know from, a, um, from the media perspective, we're looking at light rail and how we can uh, get a project for that off the ground. So I sit on that PCG as well. So a reasonably broad background, I hope, and um, I'm happy for you to direct all of the questions to Sky because she's the, <laughs> she's the international speaker, but I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Perfect. That's great, Greg. Thanks very much. You don't have to clap him. Um, look, that's great. And uh, really, um, so you've got two fantastic people to throw some questions at, um, and I'll try to do my best to... Uh, manage this. So what we've got, we've got two of the team, um, Ashley and uh, Jean. You've got uh, microphones, so what we're going to do is we're going to try to go from one side to the other and I'll do my very best. So, right, let's go over to Ashley. So there's somebody at the back there. Let's hope this all works. Um, good evening, uh, Campbell. Thank you very much. Um, ask for it, demand it, design it. New North Road, Kingsland. Could you please address that? I'll put it on the list. Um, Greg, is there anything you want to add? I mean, I think the, what the, the amazing thing is that having Greg here and, and Sky, you can also see the, the ambition that Auckland Transport has. You know, we, we're starting from a very low base over the last 50 years, and we've got, you know, AT have got a lot of work to do and a lot of catch-up, and it's going to take some time. So all these projects uh, need to be funded. But, um, Greg, maybe you could uh, perhaps give the lady a sense of where you're at with that. Uh, is it? The speaker's going. Um, yeah, look, I'm not quite sure what the question actually was. Um, I assume that there's something about New North Road that you don't like. Um, the reality of it is, at the present point in time, New North Road is a major bus transit way, so um, whilst it gets congested at peak times for uh, vehicular traffic, the priority that we need to uh, open up for is on New North Road is primarily um, public transport. If we look at um, the light rail, project that we are investigating at the moment, clearly the Ismuth area is the key uh, potential routes for that, which might help alleviate some of those bus movements and hopefully some of those uh, general traffic movements on New North Road. Thanks, Greg. Um, so let's go this side now. So there's Jean. Hi there. Um, I'm I may be able to put that question into some context, I, ho I hope. So, uh, specifically, there are some areas around Auckland that I think uh, this kind of thing that we've seen here would be an ideal to aspire to, but I think there's a very slow transition to that point. And while Sky is showing us where we can go, 
um, Greg, I think uh, you're the man that can actually put it in place. So specifically regarding Kingsland and New North Road, you've got the, uh, the, the neighbourhood shops and the restaurants and cafes where I think wider streets and uh, some way of controlling the traffic through there would be a great thing. Um, and there are a lot of examples of that around Auckland, notably Ponsonby Road, for instance. Um, I live in a neighbourhood in Point Sheb that is a thoroughfare between Miola Road and Great North Road, and we see traffic coming through there at particular times at high speeds, and this is a neighbourhood street. So what kinds of things are you putting in place to start addressing how we start to achieve this kind of thing in Auckland. Yeah, that's a, uh, so I know New, New North Road and I know the Kingston Shop area um, extremely well. Um, we're, we're doing a number of things. We're um, consolidating some of our design functions uh, in, our, in our own design office. So we have, um, I think Ludo might have mentioned just a minute ago, we're still relatively young as an organisation. So AT is just five years old. We, as you all know, performed um, from the old councils. So in reality, we have spent the last uh, few years focusing on delivering the major infrastructure projects that we had already in place. But we're seeing a, a move um, at the moment around trying to create uh, better urban space and better shared space. And so our design team are looking at that. We've been working with uh, walking and cycling, obviously, to try and improve the cycle network across Auckland and the urban cycle fund that the uh, government are helping to sponsor. So um, maybe we're not moving as quick as what a lot of people would like to see, but we have got a list of priorities around major projects that we've been trying to deliver. I don't think um, anybody in Auckland Transport would not support um, most of the things that Sky's talked about tonight. Jeanette Sadek Khan came out here 18 months ago and said pretty much the same. And so we've seen the likes of the city centre being revitalised with uh, O'Connell Street, etc., into a shared space. Um, if you read the Herald this morning, you would have seen us announcing Mission Bay. We're putting parklets into Mission Bay across the front of that as a joint venture with some of the private sector down there. So while I take on board that you'd like it all to go a lot faster, um, the reality of it is our funding mechanisms and the project priority list um, is still being developed and we'll, we'll get there, but we'll try and get there a little bit quicker. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I understand where you're coming from there, but the reality of it is uh, the proof is not yet uh, to be developed. When Waterview Tunnel opens, we'll see exactly what the congestion issues are around there. So, um, yeah, thank, thank you, Mark. Um, um, Ashley, lady in the middle there. Thank you. Um, first of all, thanks very much. It was very inspiring and interesting presentation. Um, I big supporter of public transport, but I do find um, being someone who's moved to Auckland relatively recently, there seems to be a bit of a social stigma among some people. Um, so Sky, do you have any experience or um, in overcoming those sorts of challenges or any um, advice? Yeah, I think it's going? Oh, great. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's a, it's a big challenge in a lot of places, uh, the social stigma. It seems to be more applied to buses than to trains often in a lot of cities. But, um, but there are, you know, it's something we're actually working with the city in Bogota to they're having huge overcrowding and, and actually some, you know, a lot of challenges with their bus system there, but they're looking at how can they reinvent a lot of, uh, a lot of their kind of, not only the service, they need to make sure that the service is reliable um, and that it's affordable for people, but that it's also clean and well-kept and to try and help people choose that option over, over taking personal cars. Um, I think a lot of our big cities with metros, it's not really a question. You, you take it because it's the most efficient and affordable way of getting around and owning a car is, is not. Um, the bus systems I've been on here seem pretty good from a global standard from from what I've seen but uh, that was on the kind of the new link systems which I think started a couple of years ago um, so it, I mean it is a challenge but I think it's you can work with media you can change you just need to ultimately kind of change the practice so that people can choose that mode make it efficient make it affordable um, and give people alternatives because I think the more people that take it that social stigma starts to disappear um, and it ultimately the, the reliability or the kind of efficiency of getting around the city um, in an efficient way trumps the stigma of it. Thanks, Sky. Um, Jean, lady in the middle there. Is, is, it, is the microphone on? Hi. Hello. I'm Brenda Brady. Um, mine's about Henderson, Henderson Metro Centre and Great North Road. Um, we have a big dream to do exactly what you're saying with our, our main street. Henderson's struggling. Um, the main street has lots of vacancies at the moment, lots of 1980s, pretty terrible buildings. Have you found and noticed that, that actually bringing the street into this type of environment actually helps with economic development and with redevelopment of properties? I assume that's a question for me. Um, yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I think Ludo would attest to this when we talked about Fort Street shared spaces, um, Elliott Street shared spaces, the businesses were somewhat sceptical that you know, the, no traffic outside their door, no car parking outside their door, that their retail um, revenue would disappear. And um, I think we've found exactly the opposite. I think there was a four or five fold uptake in revenue for those uh, places. So um, we definitely understand the revitalisation um, does create economic benefit. So Sky, in the, um, in the NATO guide, I mean, you've got a lot of um, case studies, haven't you? And they've all got, they've got metrics around a whole range of things that there's, there's economic pieces within that as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is, and uh, you know, there's some Funnily enough, not a lot of people measure that yet. They're starting to, case studies are starting to, and actually the chapter we're putting in here on metrics and evaluation is to help people measure these things before and after. Because sadly, if we forget to do the before and we don't take the foresight to measure the before, we, don't, we can't make the comparison. Um, so there's certainly a lot of studies and examples from you know, cities everywhere from Melbourne and New York and Portland that show the same thing as the, as the one uh, you know, here the, with the shared streets of economic improvement. Um, it's, a, it's actually a very tricky argument, though, because you want to increase value, but there's also a lot of um, challenges around gentrification and then kind of out, 
you know, pushing people out of their neighborhoods. And so it's a fine balance to try and help people understand that improvements to their streets and their neighborhoods aren't going to become a symbol of them getting pushed out. So, you know, it's something in New York we're struggling with where people see, oh, there's bike lanes coming and they don't want them because they think it's going to mean soon enough they're not going to be able to afford to live there. So it's it's a very challenging thing. It's great that there's economic benefits of this of making better streets, uh, but we do have to keep in mind the other side of it. It's just uh, it's an interesting question around the, the Henderson project and the street. Um, What's been happening in the central city in Auckland for some years now is a, a collation of data around a whole range of things, some metric and some observational. And in fact, today we've got a whole team of Auckland transport staff, volunteers, probably about 50 people who volunteered, as well as my team, who are out there counting pedestrians at the moment. They're observing what they do in the streets, and the, the methodology is, is practiced by Jan Gell and his team. So they've been helping us for 10 years. But we spent hundreds or 50 years measuring volumes and speeds, you know, billions of dollars. We don't measure what people do. And so what Sky and the team have been trying to do is put those metrics. Some are hard and fast, and some are simply, how do you feel? It's hard to value. Well, you know what it feels like to feel safe and happy in a street, but it isn't always about the economics. But um, it's the combination of all of those factors. So um, yeah, that's good. Um, Ashley, <laughs> going to go over that side again. Uh, judging by the uh, pushback from the public and the media uh, to a lot of the council initi initiatives that do come out uh, and have come out over the last um, year or so, um, is, it, um, is it likely, or my question is, does the Urban Design Guide uh, have best practice in it on how to communicate to the public? Because based on that pushback, um, it's quite clear to me, I think, that a lot of the public of Auckland are not aware of the merits of a lot of the initiatives that the council's undertaking. Obviously, they can't all come to briefings like this on a wide variety of topics. Um, so is there a best practice in the guide? Uh, we do have a chapter on, uh, or a section on communication and engagement, um, where we try and help people understand the importance of doing it, when to do it, the different strategies to go about it, um, and really try and help people the people designing streets and doing these projects to help communities and local businesses understand the benefits of these projects for them. I think, you know, you're dead right. I mean, we do, our profession does a terrible job at communication um, in terms of what the, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And, uh, you know, maybe it's no surprise, but people hate change, right? And they're gonna be against it and it's gonna be controversial. Um, and so the more we can help listen, genuinely listen to what the concerns are um, and try and work through those and help people understand the benefits that, listen, we're not, you know, we're not making these changes just to annoy you, you know, that these are the benefits actually, like we're trying to make a better environment for your children and your grandchildren to grow up in, and we're trying to make sure that you don't die when you cross the street and we want your businesses to do better and we want the air to be cleaner, that you breathe and that your kids breathe. So. It's, we absolutely have to make a better job. And actually, um, Chris and I, when we were walking over here, we were having this exact conversation. We we're like, cities need to have these incredible kind of marketing teams to help communicate this and to communicate it to a proper spectrum of the communities um, so that it's not, sadly, what often happens when you do have meetings to communicate or workshops or charrettes. It's people with a lot of time and people who are pretty angry about something that come and voice 
their concerns and that takes all the airspace, right? And so it's also important to find who are the champions in the community um, that want to see these things and talk to them and have them come to the meetings and have them talk to the other people as well. Um, so very long answer, but yes, we do have a small section on it. We wish it was, it could be its own 400 page book in itself, um, but we touch on it and we can certainly continue to grow the information online. Thanks, if Scott. I could just comment as well on that, um, I think that, that uh, at Auckland Transport we are constantly reviewing our communications to try and improve them. The, the communicational stakeholder consultation process is very, very complex. You know, when we decide that we may want to change a street into a shared space, we've got so many uh, stakeholders that we've got to consider, not just the people who live there. We've got to think about the uh, rubbish and refuse collection truck that comes down the road. We've got to think about the plumber and the electrician who is trying to service the buildings in that road, um, the transport, freight transport deliveries, etc. So inevitably, we tend to try and get through everybody in that consultation process, but uh, sometimes we, we don't achieve it. So we continuously look to try and improve. It's a, it's a great question, sir. And I, I perhaps just another a view. Um, in the day and age of, of easy communication, we, we really struggle to communicate. Um, there's so many different streams, so, many, so much noise coming at everybody. Maybe just directing it back at you a bit, is there anything, what could we do, what would you like us to do better? And have you got any ideas? Because um, we're, as Greg said, we're constantly looking at ways of doing it. Even tonight is part of a, a consultation engagement process you know, to, to gain support, to gain ideas, to debate. So anything you could give us, any ideas? I think uh, Sky touched on a, um, uh, something I, I believe in, and I think we've got to identify the champions in the community who can crystallise the views for and against and, and let those people speak rather than leave it to the media. Good, good idea. Media training doesn't uh, go amiss either <laughs> to help the media help us send the right message and often they like a bit of hype. Uh, so, you know, that's an important stakeholder in that, in that game. Can I ask a question of Sky just quickly? Do you, have you seen some, we've got, we're very lucky in Auckland, we have a couple of blogs. Um, we have a group called Transport Blog who are a really smart bunch of people who, who really know their stuff. So it's very hard to disagree. They're, they're very mobilised, they're, they're, they're smart men and women who, who do that because they love the city. Um, are there examples of, of blogs like that that are powerful like ours? Because they're great allies in our, in our Absolutely. fight. Absolutely. Streets blog in, Streets blog in, in New States. York and across the US is hugely powerful and, yeah. you know, everyone signed up to it and everyone kind of gets their daily email with all the latest stories of, of what's happening and, and they're an amazing advocacy group uh, that really help, I think, bring people together on issues. Great, great stuff. Thank you for that. Um, Ashley, no, Jean, <laughs> gentleman, ladies. Sky, um, I have lived, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, I have lived in the centre of Auckland for 25 years. Um, and I would just like to ask you if there is a process we can use to defend and save a street that you love and appears to work uh, but is, as far as the council concerned, is doomed. Um, what do we do to make certain that High Street is left alone? I'm not sure I'd be able to give you the right answer to that because I, I think there's huge potential in High Street that I would probably want to see uh, transformed. But, it, you know, that I think you bring up an issue of, um, you know, like we said, change is scary. Change uh, is something that a lot of people are very opposed to. And, 
you know, we, we must remind ourselves that cities aren't static, right? They change and evolve over time. And it's certainly not to say that we should, you know, be tearing things down and constantly rebuilding them. But cities do regenerate and we have to identify where the very valuable things are that add value to the most amount of people and preserve those and how do we then catalyze and foster change for the most amount of people where we can. So I would have to look more specifically at the project. Um, but that in the 25 years we have, um, is this week? Uh, in the 25 years, uh, we have constantly interfaced with the council and it has almost always been a fight to save. We are the, the shopkeepers and the business people uh, and, the, um, and the people who live um, around that area. Okay. Okay. Well, it's good to get the, the, the debate going. And um, so, you know, the, the process is an open democratic process and, and we welcome you to engage in that process. If you don't want it, the council won't do it. You know, you... Okay. Well, look, the other thing why don't, I would why don't just, we talk... Um, Perhaps you could talk to me afterwards because we're, we're really working hard with your... Your, uh, your fellow um, retailers and businesses, and we'd, we'd love to talk. I mean, we're not closed door at all, so let, let's perhaps speak after and offline afterwards, if that's okay. And that, okay, that um, just does catalyze oh. a thought I was going to mention is, you know, just to reiterate the idea, and, and some cities like to take this path and others don't, but interim transformations that allow us to trial a design and see what works and what doesn't um, is also a great way and a yeah. great tool in our toolbox where sometimes we don't have you know, the capital funds in our budget to do large, uh, large transformations, but we know what should be done and it's actually very affordable and cheap to change geometries or shift modes and, and trial closing. And I know, you know, Jeanette definitely would have talked about Times Square and the closing of that and how everybody thought she was the most insane person in the world to close the busiest street. Uh, intersection but you know and they genuinely said well listen let's trial it we'll figure it out and we'll check the metrics and um, you know the fact was that every single box went up in a positive direction and so they were able to use that to say okay well as a genuine community process like this is something we think makes sense because everything's better so you know to keep that in mind as as a strategy in the toolbox great thank you let's have two last questions and then uh, we'll we'll wrap up so Ashley um Who's got the microphone? That looks like Graham, Mr. Mr. East. <laughs> you've, got the, you've got the sound. You've got Hi. The uh, around about the time that Ludo first arrived in Auckland, a little over a decade ago, is that right? In May, two, a decade. Yeah. Uh, well, I was also a city councillor at the time, and one of the topics we were discussing is what we were calling livable arterials. And brilliant policy was worked up. Unfortunately, not a single one has actually been, ever been built mainly for resourcing reasons, and it's not just about money. I mean, it costs millions of dollars per kilometre to do these shared spaces and such like. Um, but the main difficulty that we've got is the, the width of the roads. Now, some of the examples you give overseas are 100 feet wide, 30 metres. Here, they were built 100 links wide, which is 20 metres, or a little over 20 metres. So, if you 
listen to all the public consultation and people want to have very wide footpaths, they want to have dedicated cycle lanes, they want to have bus lanes, they want to have street trees, and they want to have at least one lane each way for traffic, you add all that up and you've just blown your space budget. Yep. Something's got to give. So in terms of your best practice and your case studies and so on, do you have examples where you're dealing with the, the narrower spaces, not the very generous wide boulevards, which I saw in some of your examples? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just showed you guys a tiny little taste of what's in the book. It's actually a 400-page book with We've built hundreds of models, um, and maybe I should have probably tried to put in a few more of the narrow ones. But yes, we absolutely do have narrower contexts, and we realize that that's a very common condition uh, in contexts around the world. Um, the point that you know that you make is absolutely spot on. We have to, everything doesn't fit our ideal world for everything doesn't fit, and we have to make decisions. I was actually in a workshop um, a couple of weeks ago in Sambalo, and we had gone out on a street and there was a bus-only lane in each direction and a car lane in each direction, and there were 80-centimetre sidewalks. And quite regularly along that sidewalk were lampposts and things put in the middle of it, so you literally had to step into the bus lane to just walk on the sidewalk. And we came back and had a very contentious and, and lively debate around what we should do with that space, and we can't fit everything we need. But part of what we want to do is provide people the tools to say, what do we want? What's possible? What do we want? What's ideal? What do we have to give up? And where do our priorities lie? And, you know, after a lot of debate, and finally I got up and drew a section and said, listen, like, does everyone agree that even if the buses are going five kilometers an hour, this is not okay that for the sidewalk or the footpath condition? And everyone said, all the different agencies, you know, said, yes, okay, we agree. And so we said, all right, well, we have to create more space for the pedestrians. Everyone's agreed on that. So what happens? Do we take out the buses or do we take out the private cars? And then that becomes the next discussion, right? And so then you look at how many people are served by the transit versus the private cars. And so it's, you know, it's still ongoing, but eventually everyone realized, okay, well, we have to prioritize what makes the best use of our space? And so understanding those specific geometries, putting the puzzle pieces together, and, and figuring what fits within the right of way that we have, it's not always gonna be perfect. But what we say in the Global Guide is that pedestrians and people should never be compromised. That should always be first. And then if we make decisions, <laughs> transit and bicycles should take priority because they're much more efficient and sustainable ways of getting around over private motor vehicles. Graham, thanks for asking that question because that's the, that's the massive challenge that my team face on a day-to-day -day basis. We end up uh, with everybody wanting a piece of everything within a very restricted road corridor and we are forced to make compromises uh, rather than making the right decisions. So one of the things that I'm asking my team to do is on these congested and narrow corridors, we have to decide what the priority transport function is for that uh, corridor. We then need to build that transport function properly and then whatever else happens to it after that is secondary because we've got to stop building infrastructure that doesn't actually meet the requirements of uh, the primary function. And so that will mean some people will be disappointed. Um, and you, you've probably got a good example of that. If you look at the Nelson Street Cycleway, uh, when we opened the Nelson Street Cycleway, there were three car parks down the very bottom. So we went from four lanes to three lanes and then right down the bottom we went to two lanes. On the day that it opened, all of the executive team asked, why have we got three car parks? 
at the bottom, taking all of that traffic down into a two-lane funnel. And the reason we had it was because we had one or two commercial businesses absolutely opposing putting the cycleway in, so we compromised and put them back in. Three months later, we've now had to remove those. The Traffic Control Committee have said they're a safety issue, as traffic is almost having accidents down there every day because people are parked there. So we've removed them, and, and the challenge is to get it right the first time rather than have to go and re-engineer it. So thanks for asking that question. Very good answer, Greg and, and Sky. Thank you. Um, so one last question. That the, uh, where, where are we going, Jean? A lady in the middle here. Hiya. Hello. Um, well, I'll just quickly put my plug in for Queen Street, actually, uh, being Auckland's most iconic street. Um, I definitely think that we should reinvigorate the stream that runs down it in some form or another, whether it's just an art installation or not. Um, but my actual question was um, that I've been noticing, and I think it's fantastic, all these shared spaces and the, the cycleways that have been going in, but I just wondered about that... Um, environmental sustainability outcome that you've got listed um, for the desired outcomes. And I know it may end up a little bit further down the list. Um, hopefully not, not from my perspective anyway. But I, I guess my question is for Auckland. Um, I haven't seen much greening going on of our new places that have been put in, so our cycleways. Um, I would have loved to have seen, and I know there were some original ideas going around in terms of putting some green on the Nelson Street cycleway. Um, and I, I, I don't know around the structural engineering and whether that was an issue or not, but I, um, I was a little bit disappointed to see nothing like that was put in. Um, but I guess my question is, is there going to be something like that in the future thinking um, in terms of putting in with these new cycleways and um, shared spaces, just getting those biodiversity values, connecting people back with better nature and also improving our biodiversity corridors? Great, great question. Greg, do you want to, I'll, I'll follow you, Greg. Yeah, look, that, that's a, again, that's another one of those good questions. Um, if you look at the Beach Road Cycleway, we put a little bit of greening down the uh, very northern end um, towards um, uh, the port area, and uh, it looks pretty ordinary at the moment. It hasn't been well maintained. The issue for us is twofold. One, uh, maintenance costs and ongoing consequential costs of maintaining a garden or a planting. Um, it, clearly costs money to, uh, to weed it, feed it and look after it for its entirety, but also from a safety perspective as well, that sometimes putting uh, plantings in there is not necessarily the safest option for people who may be walking across it or not. But I'm actually a supporter of um, greening some of it because that looks pretty stark when we put it together like that. And so, you know, Ludo's team and ours are working together and trying to improve that as we go forward. So, I mean, to follow up on that, I guess it's just uh, sustainability is about everything that we do. It, it's about the essence of why we do what we do. And as Greg uh, really you know, clearly said, it's not, it's not appropriate every single um, spot. Um, the balancing the needs of, you know, from disability through to access, through to blind, through to maintenance, through to servicing, all these streets um, are trying to fit in a lot of things. And I, lo I loved what you said, Greg, about deciding what the priority is and then doing it. And um, I think that's, that really is the angle. Uh, but if you think about street trees, you know, streets that are aligned with trees encourages children to walk to school, you know. It helps with the sort of cooling down of our cities. So there's a whole biodiversity support. So, you look, I mean, I remember when we, um, there was a, the Queen Street massacre um, some years ago uh, where we removed some of the, the sort of plane trees, Australian plane trees and replaced them with with Nikau and uh, everybody sort of kicked up a big fuss at that time and the species are doing pretty well and they're quite iconic and I think there's elements of bringing that biodiversity back into the city because we're not Australia or Sydney or Melbourne, we're, we're Auckland and what do we look like and what do we feel like and I think that's the angle rather than just 
greening for the sake of greening. Regarding the Nelson Street off-ramp, that was the original vision, um, but it's not as straightforward as that. And you know, perhaps the, the first stage is, is getting it. We've got it now. Now let's spend two or three years falling in love with the, the, the cycleway. And let's, once that's completed, and then hopefully Mr. Hoskins won't criticize us as much, because you know, nobody drives on an uncompleted motorway, do they? So um, let's get that cycleway going, and then maybe in time, but there are health and safety issues and maintenance. So I think it's just a journey we're on, and we're, 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 I said we're starting from a low base for many years. Sky. Yeah, I'd also just add, and I didn't talk about it a lot today, but we do have a section on green infrastructure um, that we've, we've had to cut it back a little bit, um, but the hope is, and actually NACTO is working on another whole guide around green infrastructure in streets, um, but we very much, you know, realise and appreciate the value from stormwater management and detention to air quality to biodiversity, um, and it is something that we promote in the guide to put wherever possible, and even in a lot of the renderings, wherever we can, we try and show that so people can see where it fits. You know, can't always fit everywhere, but but where those where that's possible, at least for planning for it um, ahead. Because you you see places where people allow a very small space, and then they try and plant a tree, and then it doesn't live and it doesn't survive. So we're trying to also provide some basic guidance on let's make the space big enough so that okay, when you even if it has to be later, you can come in and add a tree, and that that tree can actually survive for 20, 40, 50 years or longer. There we go. So thank you uh, very much. So um, th thanks, thanks, Greg, and thanks, Guy. Um, uh, that was a really good discussion, actually. It's hard to, to manage uh, with lots of people in the room, but I'd, li I'd like to thank you both for, for what you did and uh, fantastic uh, talks, Guy. I'm going to get off. Um, my Greg, would you mind giving the vote of thanks and uh, closing the evening? Thanks. Um, thanks, Ludo. Look, um, it's always uh, great to see such a big turnout uh, at these Auckland com cons conversations. Um, the text that Ludo sent me this morning, and it was just one word, it said magenta, and I couldn't quite work out what he was talking about, but it was obviously to wear my pink shirt, because he's got his pink shirt on today. Um, look, Sky, thanks very much for coming and sharing uh, your um, views on, on urbanisation and some of the great things that, that, that are happening around the world. Um, from our perspective, we, I hope that everybody here sees that both Auckland Council and Auckland Transport are genuinely keen to learn about what's happening globally uh, in the space to try and make Auckland uh, a better city to live in for everybody that's here. So we love learning from people like yourself who come out here and share, share your um, experiences with us. Uh, it makes it even more special um, when you're a Kiwi uh, and you come back here and show us what you're doing on the world stage, and it makes it even more special on uh, International Women's Day. So thanks very much, Sky, for coming out. Um, have a safe trip home. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 